Continuing in our series in Exodus, we come this morning to Exodus chapter 33. Our New Testament complementary passage is John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. If you'd open your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 1, in honor of God's Word, please stand. John's Gospel, beginning in verse 1, hear God's Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. As far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Exodus chapter 33 and continuing in the reading of God's word. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. No one put on his ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each one would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of the cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people 
would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. As far as the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, your word is vivid. Your word is glorious. Speak to us by that word and your Holy Spirit enlightening it for us. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So the story of Israel is the story of mankind. That's why Exodus has been referred to as the most clear exposition of the gospel that is in the Old Testament. Exodus is the gospel in picture form. Chapter 33 very much follows on from chapter 32. The very scenes and the images, the, 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 the drama uh, is, is distinct from some of the more directive passages that we have been reading thus far when God gives his law. This is almost just a pure drama that the mind is to picture and to take up. But let's not forget the context of this drama. Let's not forget what's going on in this drama. Because Israel is looking for harmony. They're looking for peace. They're looking to know that someone loves them and is protecting them. And their problem is they're looking for it in all the wrong places. When Moses and Joshua disappear for over a month, 
the children of Israel say, we've been abandoned. We need gods. We need people that are more powerful than us to protect us from the nations around us. And so they make this golden calf. But what Israel desires, what you desire, what I desire, what all humanity desires is the same thing. I don't want to be oppressed. I don't want to struggle with the brokenness of a sinful world. Illness is frightening. Cancer diagnoses are unpleasant and scary. I don't like them. A child being sick or injured terrifies me as a father. I don't like the brokenness. I don't like the sickness of body and mind I don't like being frightened. I don't like being discouraged. I want to be back in Eden. I want to be back at this place where things are in harmony, where the creation is not groaning, where I do have this fellowship and communion with God where things are right. That's what we all desire, isn't it? And isn't that a metaphor in some sense for everything that our society is built around? Because how am I going to find that healing? How am I going to bridge that gap, that gulf, that chasm between where things are and where I want to be because where I want to be is a place of security, a place of peacefulness, a place of wholeness. How am I going to bridge that gap? Maybe it's a therapist. Maybe it's a bottle. Maybe it's a pill. Maybe it's a career. Maybe it's a husband. Maybe it's a wife. Maybe it's children. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's that. But do you notice how every time we start to build our bridge, we get out into the chasm and our bridges collapse. And we discover that not only are we still not over there in Eden, But now we've got the additional injury of the bridge that I built collapsing under my feet and me banging my body against the rocks as I fell down so that that bottle that I thought was going to give me wholeness, that pill prescription that I thought was going to fix it has turned into an addiction. That husband, that wife that I thought was going to bring me wholeness has turned into a monster that I have to live with. Those children that I thought would suddenly make me fulfilled as a parent grew up and became obnoxious teenagers (laughs) who are happy 
to point out every single minuscule way in which I do not perfectly reflect the holy love of God the Father and identify me by every one of those failings. All my bridges, all your bridges, all Israel's bridges start from our problem. And work their way as far out as we can get them. But don't go anywhere near crossing that gulf. Between hell on earth and Eden. Chapter 32. The children of Israel try to build a bridge. They build a golden calf. They say, show us something that we can look at, that will protect us from the enemies around us, that will protect us from the vengeance of the Egyptians. Show us something. Give us something that will be our God. And last week we saw this amazing drama from up on the mountain to down in the valley, back up on the mountain and down in the valley, and Moses coming. And chapter 32, you might look at it in your Bibles, closes with this, Verse, and God sent a plague. Now, just remember, if you can from last week or from chapter 32, the children of Israel create this golden calf. They create an idol. And I think we ought to have some compassion on them. I think we ought to give them a break. Because Moses and Joshua have been up on that mountain, we already know, for more than 40 days. They've been away from the children of Israel, and the very cry that the children of Israel bring is, we don't know what happened to them. They've disappeared for over a month. And we're here in the middle of the desert. Our deliverer Moses, our great general Joshua, for all we know, they've hightailed it. They've just decided this isn't working for us and they've disappeared. We don't know what happened to them. They've been gone for over a month. So they make the golden calf. God brings his retribution upon them. If you remember from last week, he does so in three ways. The first is, he has them drink the water that has been tainted by idolatry. He grinds up the golden calf, burns it in fire, scatters the ashes into the water, and makes everybody drink of it. The second thing he does is he tells the Levites, don't spare your brother, don't spare your friend. Go forth through the camp. And 3,000 men were killed. And that's the manner in which the Levites were ordained for ministry. And then the third thing, the chapter closes, he sent a plague. And I want to ask you this question. Don't you think God has punished them enough? Don't you think the tainted water, 
the ringleaders of this thing, 3,000 of them, killed right there in front of everybody. And then finally a plague. Don't you think maybe God has punished them enough? Don't you think maybe at this point, God ought to say, okay, you've learned your lesson, don't do this again. I think that that's a legitimate question to ask. I think that an average reader of the text would look at that and say, whoa, God like really lost his cool over this, didn't he? God, God's like a dad that the child disobeyed just one time too many and he lost it. <laughs> he went overboard and the dad needs to kind of chill a little bit now. Dad needs to set aside. Dad needs to take some deep breaths and calm down because if he interacts with that child anymore, it's going to be very, very, very bad. And so dad needs to get himself under control. You might think that we could say that of God here. To ask that question is the wrong question. The question is not... Hasn't God punished them enough? The question is this. How can God dwell with sin? Because you see, beloved, all the punishment in the world does not wipe out sin. You can think of that as a father, as a mother. That disrespectful child. That child that looks at you and shakes their little puny fist and says, Mommy, I hate you. You can discipline. You can correct the behavior. But you know what you can't do? You cannot change the heart. That child who says... Yes, I did something wrong, and I deserve the punishment. It's not the same as the child who says, I'm sorry. I was wrong. I see my error. I see my sin. The question is not, hasn't God punished them enough? The question is, how can God dwell in the presence of sin? And the fact is that he cannot. In him is light. And in him is no darkness at all. Do you believe that? I mean, his word says it. In him is no darkness at all. Not even a hint of your disrespect. Not even a hint of your discontent. Not even a hint of all of the ways in which we fail. In which we are darkness. 
And there's, there's this clear principle that God is holy. He is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. And the clear principle that in Jesus Christ we know grace and truth has actually led people throughout the last 2,000 years of the New Testament church into a false religion. And that false religion is one that says the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath. A God of judgment. He's the God that just wants to squish out ants under his magnifying glass. That's the God of the Old Testament. Fire and darkness and brimstone and hail and judgment. But the God of the New Testament loves you. He's a God of mercy, grace, and gentleness. He's the one that says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So these have to be two different gods. I'm a New Testament Christian because this stuff bothers me. (laughs) This stuff and this picture of God bothers me. I think it should. I think it should. But here is the reality. There is one God. And there is one mediator between God and man. And that is the man, Christ, Jesus. And in the Old Testament, we see this absolute holiness of God. We see this absolute purity of God. So much so that... Our passage opens here with this absolute separation in verses 1 through 6. And do you remember from chapter 32, the, the, the back and forth in the drama there was God saying to Moses, this people, you, your people, you lead these people. They're not my people. And Moses saying back to God, to God, wait, wait a minute. Wait, these are your people, God. These are your people. We continue that drama here in the first six verses. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. Now, he said, I'm going to send you. I'm going to remember the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You remember that was Moses' intercession in chapter 32. I'm going to fulfill my promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I'm going to take them to a land flowing with milk and honey. So, what's the problem? Did did you hear earlier in our reading, when the people heard this disastrous word? I don't think it's disastrous. (laughs) He says, I'm going to remember my promises... I'm going to drive all the enemies of the land out, and I'm going to bring you to a land flowing with milk and honey. And the people hear this disastrous word and strip themselves of all of their ornaments. 
Why is it disastrous? I think they're getting exactly what they've wanted. They're getting all the blessings without any of that scary holiness stuff. They're getting all the treats without any of the duties. And so, doesn't sound disastrous to me. It shouldn't sound disastrous to you. It should sound to you and me like, cool. Because <laughs> this God is a God that keeps sending plagues and telling us to chop people up and, and to drink tainted water. And he, he's going to open up the ground and he's going to swallow a bunch of us. And yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay, God. You stay there. <laughs> Take me to the land flowing with milk and honey. Drive out all the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites. Drive all those people out. And you stay over there. I'm good with that. The people hear this disastrous word. And they zero in on what the disastrous nature is. And that is that God will not be with them. God will not be in their midst. God will not be their God in the way that he was Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's God, even in the way that he's Moses' God. God will not be with them. They see it as a disaster, and they rip off all of their garments of celebration, all of their garments of joy. And look at verse 6. From Mount Horeb onward. Now remember when the Pentateuch is being written? The children of Israel are camped in the plains of Moab, preparing to enter into the promised land. So you've got a bunch of adults here. This is more than 40 years after these events. You've got a bunch of adults here who are learning why mom never did put on her earrings after that day. I remember that day. I was 12 years old. Mom used to have earrings and nose rings, and rings on her fingers. She used to put on her fancy dress every night. She packed all that stuff away. Why did she do that? It is a testimony to the children. Now, over 40 years later, why mom and dad have been in mourning for their entire lifetime. The removal of God's presence, beloved, is the worst disaster that could ever occur. That is what hell is. Hell is that place where there is no light. Hell is that place where God has ultimately, finally, and completely turned his back and said, Lost. Gone from my sight. The torments of hell are merely indicative of the torment that it is to not have God's presence. To not be in His presence. 
And so, beloved, the children of Israel get it. Secondly, our passage moves on to this place of meeting in verses 7 through 11. Now, you might have, you might have noticed the phrase repeated several times through those verses that Moses set up this tent of meeting outside the camp. Now, outside the camp is outside the people of God. That, that, that's going to be the beauty of the tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle hasn't been built yet. We've been describing the tabernacle, and the tabernacle is going to be built in coming chapters. But right now, there is no tabernacle. Because the tabernacle is the only way that God can be in the midst of his people. The tabernacle is the Garden of Eden. It's the Garden of Eden, except the gate is no longer barred by an angel with a flaming sword. The gate is open, but it requires that we come through the sacrifice, through the mediation, through the blood. All of the sacrificial system is right there, front and center, in order to enter into the tabernacle. But it is the Garden of Eden. It is this place of wholeness and completeness, peace with God. But it hadn't been built yet, so the tent of meeting is outside the camp. And Moses, in meeting with God outside the camp, will come back. Did you notice there at the uh, verse 11, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man would not depart from the tent. Now, it's interesting, this is not the first time we've heard Joshua's name. Joshua is the one that went up on the mountain with Moses for 40 days. Joshua is also the one who led the children of Israel in, their, in, in the battle that, they, that they've already faced. But Joshua just kind of is anonymous. We don't know who none is. It's almost like a play on words in English. It is not in Hebrew. Uh, but, but we certainly don't know who Nun was. He's not mentioned in any genealogies. He's just Joshua the son of Nun. And Joshua's just kind of a young man. He, he, there, there's no clear development of a theology of who Joshua is. It's simply that Joshua we know is very closely connected with Moses and somehow very closely connected with God so that when Moses leaves the tent of meeting, Joshua remains there. He remains in the tent of meeting. And all of a sudden you can see how for you and me who have this completed revelation, For you and me who no longer dwell under the shadows. For you and me who have the fullness of what the Bible is. All of a sudden, something ought to click in your brain. You will call his name Joshua. For he will save his people from their sins. Joshua. Jehovah saves. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, the angel's statement. 
that Jesus, the Greek form of Joshua, somehow that is essential. That Joshua is there. Moses the lawgiver comes and brings the word of God. But Joshua remains there in the tent. Because there's a better Joshua coming. The world is waiting for that true Joshua. The one of whom this faithful man is just a small picture. So from that meeting place, we then shift thirdly and finally to this last section of the drama, which is verses 12 through 23. And that is both the intercession and the glory. The intercession and the glory. Now it's interesting, as we begin... In verse 12 there, Moses said to the Lord, See, you have said to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know who you will send with me. What's Moses talking about? He's talking about the angel. The Lord promises, back in verse 1, uh, I'm sorry, verse 2, I will send an angel before you. And I'll drive out the Hittites, Canaanites, etc. And Moses said, you've not let me know whom you will send with me. I don't know this angel. Do you notice God doesn't say anything about the angel? He doesn't say a word about him. The rest of the passage is not, oh, oh, Moses, here, here, here's who the angel is. The angel is a prefiguration of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is going to... doesn't say any of that. What he says instead is, I've known you by name. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory, it's an excellent essay. But he says, you know, To come as a child. Think about that. To to come to God as a child. One of the things that is so beautiful about a child. Many many other things are not so beautiful. But one of the things that is truly, truly beautiful about a child. Is how they adore the praise of mom or dad. How they adore it. When mom or dad looks at them and says, well done. Well done. You just see their face beam. You see the delight that they take in receiving the praise of the one whom they adore. Is that your attitude towards God? Is that your attitude towards His law? Is that your attitude towards holiness? Now, I'll be honest, my attitude towards holiness 
more often falls along the line of, okay, I'll give up this sin. I know it's a sin. I know I shouldn't do it. But God says, give it up. So, okay, I will. And like the child stomping off to bed, I'm obeying. (laughs) But I may be sitting down, but I'm standing up on the inside. The delight that a child takes in the approbation of their parent. The approval of their parent. That word, well done. Good, and faithful servant. Causes the child to glow. And do you hear that's what causes Moses to glow? That's Moses' relationship with God. When God looks upon Moses, he doesn't see a man who is perfect. We know already because Moses is the guy that failed to circumcise his sons and Zipporah was the one who cut off their foreskins, threw them at his feet and said, you are bloody. You are a husband of blood to me. We know Moses isn't a perfect man because he murdered a guy and ran as a fugitive for 40 years into the wilderness. Moses did not earn his relationship with God. He didn't earn any kind of place before God. But God looks upon Moses and says to him, Well done. Well done. And Moses shines. Moses has that faith of a child. And Moses continues his intercession on behalf of the people. He says, in verse 13, If I have found favor in your sight, please let me show, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too, this nation is your people. God has has said now twice, I don't want anything to do with them. These are unholy, stiff-necked, rebellious people, and if I am in their presence, even for a moment, I'm going to consume them. I cannot stand sin. And Moses says, no, they are your people. They belong to you. They are your people. And then... In verse 15, he says, How will it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? You see, this gets to what the problem is with God separating from his people. A land flowing with milk and honey, a land in which all the enemies have been cleared out, Sounds good to me. The people hear this discouraging word. Because they know that without God's presence, there's nothing. And Moses' appeal to God is to say, God, without your presence, without your presence, none of this means anything. If you are not with us, 
then all of this means nothing. And so then God says, Moses says, please show me your face, your, your glory, rather. I'm sorry. He says, please show me your glory. And God says, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. His goodness is defined, I'll, I'll read it, because <laughs> it's interesting. Here's God's goodness. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Does that sound good? Come on. Honestly, does that sound good? It sounds kind of arbitrary. It sounds a little domineering. If I said that to one of my children, let's say I decide to give one of my children the entire inheritance in my will, all my Worldly possessions are going to go to this one child. And the children come to me and they say, Hey, Dad, you know, that's a little unfair, it seems to me. And I say to them, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Are they going to walk away from that going, Oh, okay. We understand, Dad. No worries. Technically, I'm right. It's my stuff. I can give my stuff to anybody I want to. (laughs) Technically, I'm right. But it sounds a little arbitrary. It sounds a little domineering. It sounds a little harsh. A God of judgment. A God of wrath. Beloved, if we turn that around, He will be gracious. He will show mercy. Everything that we have seen thus far is the children of Israel should be consumed in a second. They should be wiped out. He says, they need to be protected from me. I can't be in their midst for a moment or I'm going to consume them. Your sinfulness. I mean, let's, let's be clear here. We're not talking about some people over there. Your sinfulness, my sinfulness, your wickedness, my wickedness are such that I cannot be in God's presence for a moment because he cannot abide sin. And then we end with this hiding in the cleft of the rock being covered with the hand, causing his glory to pass before his face. And so I want to ask you, from verse 1 to verse 23, what changed? I mean, I've tried to walk you through the drama. We start with God saying, I cannot abide sin. I cannot be in their presence. Moses intercedes for them. And somehow, by verse 23, we're starting to focus on the beauty and the glory and the 
sweetness of God. So what changed? At what point does God say, oh, Moses, you're right. They're my people now. Because clearly something has changed. Something has changed in this chapter between verse 1 and verse 23. So what is it? Well, that's the problem. (laughs) That's the problem. That chasm, that gulf between hell on earth and paradise on earth. That chasm between the sin and the brokenness and the beauty and the healing. And every time we build that bridge, it collapses because there's nothing on the other side of that grand canyon. What changed? Some verses I've skipped over a bit. But let's look at them just real quickly. And to get the sense of the verses, in chapter 14, verse 19, Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, Isn't that what God promised in chapter 33? I will send an angel before you. The angel of God who is going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. Coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind. That angel that went before the children of Israel in chapter 14 becomes identified with God as the one who parts the Red Sea. That angel that God does say, I, in his separation from Israel, in his rejection of Israel, he still says, I'm going to send this angel. And that angel was sent. And beloved, the children of Israel couldn't see that. Clearly. I mean, they knew, they saw visually, this angel that is moving before them. But did they know how God's holiness, His inability to even exist in the presence of sin can be reconciled with a sinful people. There's no way they could have known it. There's no way they could have understood that you will call His name Jesus because He will save His people from their sin. God Himself is the angel. God Himself sent Himself the second person of the Trinity. And if you can get your brain wrapped around that, then congratulations, you're the first in all human history to do so. I don't get it. I don't understand how God is one and God is three. 
I don't understand how God sent God. How the giver of life died. How God turned His back upon God. But I also don't understand how God indwells me. How God opens my eyes. How God changes my heart. I don't understand that either. But I know He says He does. And I feel the effects of it in my life. As I slowly become more and more a man who hates that old man. And a man who desires to be beautiful in holiness as Christ Jesus is. Beloved, that gap, that gulf, that gap, that chasm, that canyon has been bridged because the bridge began from this side. The bridge began from God. The bridge began from Eden. The bridge began from a place of holiness and purity. And God Himself made that bridge between what we all desire and the reality that we see in ourselves and in the world around us. So that it is harmonized in that angel of the Lord. That angel who is revealed to be Jesus Christ. That one who is the true Joshua. Who no longer stays in the tent of meeting, but has come out of the tent of meeting and has come into your life, has come into your world has taken on flesh, has dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law came through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. And He was right here all the time. He was right here in chapter 33 and verse 2. He was right there when the Red Sea was parted. And he led these confused, stumbling, broken, sinful, stupid people. And he does so still.